Thank you for joining us for Honest Conversations in Black and White. I'm Virgil Walker. I'm here with Scott Annual. Uh, we're being joined today by Dr. Tom Pennington. Uh, Dr. Thomas, great to have you with us today. I want to give a little bit by way of background in your biography, uh, let folks who may be unfamiliar with you uh, know a little bit about you. You are the pastor and teacher of Countryside Bible Church here in Dallas. We're actually here uh, in Dallas and uh, excited to be in this great place, great space. Uh, we're about to have a conference here soon. Uh, coming up in May. And so we're really excited about that. That said, as we were talking earlier, you mentioned the fact that you uh, have been the pastor here for 20 years. Speak to that just for a second. Yeah, it has been a great blessing. You know, I, I came from Grace Community Church in California and then um, moved here in 2003 with my family. And it has been a 20-year honeymoon. Yeah. You know, a great oh, group great. of people. I tell people all the time I'd attend this church if I weren't its pastor. Oh, that's great. Uh, which, as you know, a lot of pastors wouldn't say. Yeah, right. that's So great. Uh, it's that's been wonderful. a great blessing. Yeah, that's wonderful. I, I, I get a sense of that feeling just coming in, the hospitality that we mm -hmm. were met with this great space that's mm -hmm. here. Uh, some of the history you even told us about the cross that's here and some of the wood things that are here. This is absolutely uh, amazing. You mentioned serving for 16 years at Grace Community Church, uh, including as the senior associate pastor and personal assistant to, to Dr. John MacArthur. That had to be exciting. <laughs> Prior to that, you served as the managing director of Grace to You, overseeing the day-to-day -day operations of that ministry. Uh, Tom has also contributed uh, to a number of publications, including the MacArthur Study Bible. Uh, Tom's teaching ministry is featured on The Word Unleashed. Yeah, so we're glad to have you with us. Uh, we're here today to talk about a brand new book that you've written. I, I want to start here because I I first became aware of you, uh, I guess it was 10 years ago mm. during the Strange Fire Conference. Mm -hmm. uh, about probably 15, 18 years ago, I was embroiled in kind of the, 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 the gospel, uh, uh, prosperity gospel. Uh, really entrenched in charismaticism. Mm. Um, and so hearing Strange Fire, hearing about Strange Fire was important to my spiritual development having come out of that movement. Mm. Um, I think one of the things that what really impressed me about, about your sermon was just, just the methodical way that you approach scripture mm. uh, and ensure that, that this wasn't some feeling you had or some angst you had against a group of people. Mm. Uh, but more than that, you were beholden to the scripture. Talk a little bit about, about the Strange Fire Conference 10 years ago, mm -hmm. your expression, your experience in that space. Well, the, the strange thing about that, you know, <laughs> when, I, when I look back is I wasn't originally supposed to be one of the speakers. There That's was another man who'd been invited and mm -hmm. for a number of reasons wasn't able to be there. And mm -hmm. so Grace to you asked me if I would step in and fill the role. We started talking about what would be sort of the approach and the message. And as we looked at the schedule as it had been laid out, there wasn't a message that really stepped back and looked at the arguments mm -hmm. for cessationism. Yeah, yeah. And I said, I'm in, I'll yeah, take that. Yeah. And uh, you know, when I volunteered to do that, it was, uh, it was with excitement, but as I got into it, there was a little bit of trepidation it's because it's like, what do I do? Do I just concentrate on one or two arguments yeah. or do I try to summarize all of the arguments? And either way, there were pitfalls, right? So. Uh, I eventually landed on saying, okay, I'm going to walk through the best of the biblical arguments. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where I ended. And yeah, I think you have to come back with this issue or with any issue. Mm -hmm. What does the Bible say? Yeah. And so that's where I wanted to go is to say, you know, let's try to cut through all of the noise and the heat and everything else and just say, 
What does the scripture teach yeah, about this? Yeah, that's fantastic. So really, this book is a really expansion of that message, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and so yeah. why, so 10 years later, why did you feel like now's the time to expand that into a full-length book from what you did at, at the conference? Well, you touched on one of the reasons. It's been 10 years since Strange Fire. It's hard to believe, yeah. but but there hasn't really been another voice speaking into that for 10 years. And of course, a lot of things have happened over those 10 years. I think for me, another major contributor is the increasing encroachment of the charismatic movement into the evangelical church. I'm old enough to remember when, when the evangelical church was willing to recognize that some in the charismatic movement were our brothers, Mm -hmm. but not willing to embrace them and bring them in to shared ministry yes. and all of that. Right. Um, and so that's a, a growing concern because yeah, I yeah. see the fruit of that. Yeah. And then finally, I, I think as I looked at what was out there, as I prepared for Strange Fire and even to this day, there wasn't another resource that sort of stepped back and looked at all of the best arguments. Yeah. There were great resources that dealt with one or two or maybe even three of those arguments. Yeah. But I felt like as I tried to put my arms around the, the material that had been written, there wasn't a resource that yeah. was a summary of those arguments. So that was my hope. Yeah. Well, John MacArthur's book, Strange Fire, what it primarily did was it kind of traced the historical narrative of, you know, of, right. of, of the craziness that, that is right. uh, some of the, the strange fire aspects of charismaticism. Uh, what it did not do to the point you made was really d- do a deep dive right. uh, into the arguments. And so uh, that's kind of what's a little bit different about this mm-hmm. book here. Kind of speak to us about how you put this together and what your thoughts were behind it. Yeah, well, I wanted to do several things. You know, I think the chief thing I wanted to do is I didn't want to preach to the choir. Right. You know, I didn't want to try to convince those who are already convinced. And so I wanted the tone of the book mm-hmm. to be such that if you have family or friends who are in the charismatic movement, yeah. this just sort of puts your arm around them and says, let's, let's talk through this biblically. What yeah. does the Bible say? Mm-hmm. And walk through it. So it's intentional uh, that it has that tone. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the other part was I didn't want to make it too long because yeah. I didn't yeah. want it to be intimidating for people who aren't by nature readers. Yeah. And, uh, and then finally, I just wanted to summarize those arguments yeah, and, and expand on them. There were things that, of course, in a one-hour message, you have to leave yeah. on the cutting room floor. Yeah. And so I, I wanted to, to fill those out and uh, answer some of the questions that have been raised after Strange Fire. Yeah, and it, it really does have that tone. It's readable. It's accessible. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can hear your pastor's heart mm-hmm. uh, just trying to communicate the truths of Scripture. Uh, it, you, you lay out seven key arguments in defense of cessationism. Can you just sort of bird's eye, just for folks who haven't, haven't read the book, mm-hmm. uh, who might be interested in reading it, can you bird's eye sort of bullet point, what are those seven key arguments that you lay forth in the book? Yeah, no, I'm happy to do that. I, you know, it begins, and I think really the most important argument is the unique role of miracles in Scripture. Mm-hmm. When you look at the Old Testament, the New Testament, from the very beginning, I'm not talking now about when God works a miracle directly. Sure. I mean, that happens throughout the Scripture and, and throughout different time periods. But when you look at when God gifts men to work miracles, yeah. you see one purpose again and again come up, starting with Moses, the first prophet mm-hmm. and the first man empowered to work miracles. You look at Exodus 4, Exodus 7, it's clear. Moses says, 
how will they know mm -hmm. that I speak for you? Mm -hmm. And God says, I'm going to empower you right. to work miracles. Right. Right. So the unique role of miracles has always been to validate God's messenger as God's messenger, mm -hmm. one who speaks for God, revelation from God. Mm -hmm. So that would be the first of the seven arguments. The, the second has to do with the uh, end of the gift of apostleship. You know, a lot of uh, charismatics will say, you're, you're sort of artificially dividing between the apostolic age and the post-apostolic mm -hmm. age. Right. But if, in fact, the primary miraculous gift, the gift of apostleship, ended with the apostolic age, then there has been a dramatic, radical change right. in God's working. And even most charismatics would admit that there are no apostles today mm -hmm as there were in the first century. Right. So I just lay out the arguments for what, what was it that was required for a man to be an apostle mm -hmm. and showing that's impossible today. Yeah, yeah. The, the third argument goes to the foundational nature of the New Testament apostles and prophets. Ephesians chapter 2, verse mm -hmm. 20. You know, we are God's household, having been built, you know, clear right. in the language of the New Testament, yeah. having been built, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And, you know, some would argue, well, that's the Old Testament mm -hmm. prophets. But in chapter three, he goes on to say, we're talking about what has now yes. been revealed, wasn't revealed, but has now been revealed mm -hmm. through his apostles and prophets. So mm -hmm. clearly in context, he's talking about New Testament apostles and prophets. Mm -hmm. So the church then has been built on that foundation. Absolutely. So I think it's important to understand that. You know, the real nature uh, of the miraculous gifts would be another argument. Mm. When you examine the, the New Testament miraculous gifts and you compare them to what's happening in the charismatic movement, yeah. there's almost no resemblance yeah. whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, the gift of tongues, right? You have in Acts 2, it's clear what's going on, that they're speaking languages they've never studied. The, the, the Greek word dialectos mm. is there. You have these clear manifestations of a gift to speak a language, a real human language. And that's true in, in Acts 10. Later in Acts mm -hmm. 19, it says this is what happened to at the beginning. And so it's repeated throughout that, uh, throughout the scripture. And so that's not what's happening mm -hmm. in the charismatic movement. The same is true for the miracles. Same mm -hmm. is true for prophecy. You know, you have the two-tier prophecy right. in mo the modern charismatic movement. So the miraculous gifts in their very nature in the New Testament are different than what's being practiced in the modern charismatic movement. I, a fifth argument would be the New Testament rules. Mm -hmm. When you look at 1 Corinthians 14, right. you know, it's not like you just get to practice them any way you want. Right, decently and in order. There you go. Yeah. I mean, the New Testament's very clear. How many, mm -hmm. you know, they have to go in order. Right. There has to be with tongues. There has to be an interpreter. interpreter. Sure. And all of these rules that are clearly laid down for the real New Testament gifts, and frankly, they are, they are ignored in the modern charismatic movement. Yeah. Uh, a, a movement that claims to be an expression of the Spirit of God in complete disregard for of the, the commands of the Spirit. Yeah. The, the sixth argument would be the sufficiency of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Everywhere you look, Scripture affirms its sufficiency. We have been given in the Scripture all things pertaining to life and godliness. Mm -hmm. You look at Psalm 19 and that amazing description of the Word of God and what it can accomplish. You look at Psalm 119. Mm -hmm. Look at Paul's affirmation in 2 Timothy 3 of what Scripture can do. It can save you. It can sanctify you. It, it's able to make the man of God 
adequate for for every good work. Mm -hmm. And so there is nothing else we need but the Spirit of God using the Word of God, and that's the testimony of the Scripture. And then the the final argument would be the testimony of church history. Mm -hmm. Some have said, well, how's that an argument from Scripture? And it's an argument from Scripture in this way. We're saying that what we're arguing the Scripture teaches is what Mm -hmm. the best minds throughout the history of the church have argued the Scripture teaches. And so we're not standing alone here. Mm -hmm. When you look at the predominant view of church history, you see that they have affirmed what we affirmed, that the miraculous gifts ceased with the end of the apostolic era. Yeah, yeah. When we, as as we think about what we're um, positing, the fact that Scripture's sufficient, uh, the fact that uh, we look at the whole of Scripture, we understand what, what miracles are actually for. Uh, you're laying out a, a case that, uh, that, that looks at through, throughout all of Scripture, right? The mm-hmm. whole of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, often, I think what people charge uh, us uh, with, with mm-hmm. is, well, you don't have that one bullet Scripture mm-hmm. that says, all gifts have ceased. Mm. Uh, all the miraculous gifts have ceased. And so it, that's, the, that's the pushback. I mean, we get, you get attacks from every angle. Uh, Some of it personal, some of it, you know, you know, falls kind of flat. But at the same time, we think about what the Bible has to say about these things. We're we're convinced. What do you say to the person who even given all that you laid out Mm -hmm. is not convinced and says, where's where's that one scripture that we need to land? Sure. And, you know, that's a that's a valid question, but one that's easily answered. Mm. Uh, First of all, that question cuts both ways. Right. Right. I mean, there's no verse that says they'll continue either. Mm-hmm. And I understand. They would say, well, that's an argument from silence. But the other part of that is we understand as believers, and all serious Bible students through the history of the church have understood, that you don't have to have a clear verse mm-hmm. to have a clear doctrine. Right. And the most obvious example of that is the Trinity. Yes. One of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith. And there is no verse anywhere that says that we worship one God in three persons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet that is the clear teaching of Scripture when you put it together. Right. When, when you look at the analogy of Scripture, when you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, then that's where you land. The same thing is true with this. So, yeah. so I think I understand where that's coming from. It's like, show me the evidence. Right. And my response is, the evidence isn't in a verse. The evidence is all of Scripture looked at as as a whole. Yeah. But you're looking at individual text in that process of building the argument, just as you do with the Trinity. Yeah. You know, we it's not that we just say, well, the Bible teaches the Trinity. It's like, no, we go to individual texts right. and we show how put together right. there's there's no other position to arrive at. That's yeah. good. And the same is true. Yeah, and I think the, pro- the problem with that criticism too, especially with... You know, our even uh, reformed evangelical brothers brothers who do believe in the continuation of the gifts who charge us with this, I always want to come back with, okay, where's the chapter? You know, they believe the canon is closed, right? They believe that that, that prophecy today is something different than prophecy during Scripture. So where is the chapter and verse that says the canon is closed and here are the 66 books that are part of the canon? That's great. No, you're absolutely and, and right. That's, you know, they would answer the same way that you just did, that we understand it theologically, we make a biblical case, mm-hmm. but it is more a theological yeah. case. It, it's, an, it's an appeal to a, a systematic uh, theological approach right. to the idea. That's yeah. how you land there. Yeah. 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 So there, there's already been uh, a lot of response, both to the book and to the film. And by the way, we should mention uh, your book is already available also in Spanish. Yeah. 
I was just notified recently that it's beginning to be distributed all around Latin America, mm -hmm. which is exciting. That is yeah. exciting. Um, yeah. So that's that'll be a wonderful a resource because we know the charismatic movement has infiltrated Latin America, mm -hmm. I mean, really all over the world. But yeah. we pray that that will be a, a great benefit. Uh, but there's already started to be you know some response, and that's understandable. And and we of course welcome that. Let's have mm -hmm. a biblical dialogue. Yeah. But I've seen some, and I'm curious how you would respond to this. Some who who will say, this is a secondary issue. Mm -hmm. This is not something to divide over. You, why are you making such a big deal of, mm. uh, deal about this? What what would you say to that that criticism? You know, I would say you have to ask what biblical doctrine is involved in this question, mm -hmm. because that's what determines whether or not it's a secondary issue. Right. So, for example, some could argue, you know, why are you why are you addressing the, the nature of faith? You know, that's a secondary issue. Mm. Lordship salvation. Why is that an issue? Mm -hmm. Well, because it goes to the heart of the gospel. Yes. It goes to the heart of soteriology. Uh -huh. And the same thing is true with this one. Mm -hmm. It's not secondary because it involves the, the doctrine of Scripture. Uh -huh. And specifically, it addresses, or I should say, even undermines the authority of Scripture uh -huh. and the sufficiency of Scripture. Not to mention the work of the Holy Spirit. Exactly. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. And so the the question always has to come back to, what does the Scripture teach? Yeah. And if the Scripture teaches something clearly and the church has affirmed that predominantly throughout its history, then it's not secondary. Right, right. Yeah. As you kind of look at the landscape of evangelicalism, and I know you've, you've got kind of a front row seat here in Dallas, Texas, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a, a place where there's a lot of folks who are churched, uh, but maybe not necessarily Christian. I'm sure you're finding that oh, to yeah. be no uh, the case every, everywhere you go. And as a result, those who are churched get doctrine and ideas from a lot of different spaces and places. Mm -hmm. It's interesting in, in our reformed circles where you know we, we want to have a, a finger on the pulse of Scripture, you're still witnessing, we're still witnessing uh, the slow creep of the of continuationism, of, of charismatic approaches, whether it be tongues or ideas about, about views of Scripture. As you kind of examined it with regard to reform circles in particular, how have you seen this creep in? What does it look like in, in, in some of our spaces? You know, Virgil, I think that's a, a great question. I think it's a question we have to, as individuals and as individual spiritual leaders and pastors and elders, have to ask ourselves carefully that's because good. it's happening. Yeah. Right. And so for me, and, and this may not be an all-inclusive list, but for me, the three primary ways that I see that creep happening, um, I think one of them has to do with the open but cautious view, mm -hmm. you know, that's championed by men that we love and respect. Sure. Mm -hmm. I think that sort of cracks the door open mm -hmm. for a lot of guys, particularly younger guys. You know, as you know, uh, the the disciples always go farther than the teacher, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and so I think it opens that door in in very unhelpful ways. I, I would say a second one that's that's very common is shared ministry. You know, we because we look at a brother and we say, look, he's he's evangelical. Mm -hmm. His doctrine of salvation is right. Mm -hmm. He he's reformed. He believes in the gospel. I believe in. Then we can sh we can do shared ministry together. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think you have to step back and say what really makes sense in in terms of fellowship versus ministry. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, if if someone's a brother, if they're going to be in heaven, yes. if they understand the true Jesus, the true gospel. And they're not living, you know, First Corinthians five in open flagrant sin. Right. I can have fellowship with them. Yeah. I can sit down yeah. across the table and enjoy a meal and have fellowship with them. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean 
that I should join them in shared ministry because mm -hmm. sometimes the differences are great enough. You know, an example outside of this area would be someone who is completely Arminian to the core. Sure. You know, if they've embraced the biblical gospel, I, I think they're obviously wrong on a number of fronts, sure. but I can have fellowship with them. Sure. But that doesn't mean I'm going to invite him to speak in my pulpit right, right, or have some sort of shared ministry together. Yeah. And that used to be the way the church thought about this issue. Uh -huh. But over time, that has that barrier has been broken down. So well, I think that's why, the second. Why do you think that is? Why, why is that? Why has that happened? You know, I think it's it's because the issue hasn't been addressed a lot. There've okay. been only a few ver voices <laughs> yeah. in evangelicalism addressing yeah, it. That's a good point. People have gotten used to it, mm -hmm. accustomed to it. As the charismatic movement has grown in numbers, there are more of them around, and I think that just mm. sort of uh, you know it just it eventually breeds that sort of acceptance. Sure, it's kind of the uh, the frog in the kettle. Mm. You know, yeah. it just it just happens slowly. Yeah, I would say the third way that the charismatic movement has continued to creep into the evangelical church is by embracing worship music that is that is explicitly charismatic mm -hmm. in its yep. influence. Absolutely. You know, honestly, the, the biggest one of those today would be Bethel, yeah. where you have a radical form of the charismatic movement. Mm -hmm. And yet when you look at the, the top music in today's Christian world, it comes from Bethel. Yeah. And, uh, and I think pastors and elders, I believe, and this is just a personal conviction, make a mistake when they allow certainly the most radical and and sort of explicitly influenced mm -hmm. forms of charismatic music to make their yeah. way into the church because yeah. it has a message Absolutely. it has a feel it has a message yeah. uh, you know i'm not arguing that this is an issue of conscience i'm not sure. arguing that a church shouldn't do some of the music done by our reformed charismatic mm -hmm. brothers that's i mean that's fine we do some of that mm -hmm. but i'm saying when you have when you have a rapidly mm -hmm. uh, charismatic, and I'm talking about way out there sort right. of ministry like Bethel in California. Yeah. And they're setting the, they're infiltrating evangelical reformed cessationist churches yeah. every Sunday. I agree. Yeah. It's going to happen. Yeah. yeah. In many ways, this is related to the previous discussion about, well, this is just a secondary issue. As you've mentioned, I think a lot of church leaders today have lost the ability to say, okay, yes, it's a secondary issue, but that doesn't mean it's unimportant. And that doesn't mean it doesn't impact the gospel. Right. And then there are levels of fellowship that we need to work through. And right. they're, they're hard. It's not black and white. It's not, they're not easy answers. But we have to be able to, to discern, okay, we can have fellowship or maybe we can partner in this aspect of ministry, but not this aspect of ministry. Mm -hmm. We've sort of lost that discernment with yeah. the sort of, I think it, it partly has to do with a sort of gospel minimalism yeah. that we've seen in recent days. Yeah, exactly. Champion for good reasons. Exactly. You know, we need right. to be we need to be together on the Absolutely. gospel. We need to fellowship, and of course, we all agree on that yes. to a point. But yes. the way I like to think of it is sort of concentric circles. Yes. You know, yes, of, exactly. of, it starts the broadest circle is an, a person who believes in the biblical Jesus and the biblical gospel. Yes. I mean, if they are truly a brother or sister in Christ, mm -hmm. then that circle, anybody in that circle, and as I said, that isn't walking in open, unrepentant right. sin, 1 Corinthians 5, where you're not supposed to associate right. with them. Right. Anybody in that circle, I can have fellowship yes. with. But the circle narrows when you start talking about shared ministry. Yes. Now, I can have someone, for example, preach in my church who doesn't share my eschatological view, mm -hmm. 
but I'm I'm not going to have someone preach in my church who doesn't share my continuation my cessation view and their mm-hmm. continuationist yeah. mm-hmm. because that opens an entirely new issue yes. that I I think is too important. Yeah. The the circle narrows when you talk about membership. Yeah. Now they have to be able to affirm the church's doctrinal statement, mm-hmm. you know, maybe with one or two exceptions that the elders may allow, uh, as long as they don't create division. Sure. But then when you come to the leadership of the church, now you're at that smallest mm-hmm. concentric circle, where at least in our church, they have to be in full agreement without any doubt yeah. on everything in the church's doctrinal yeah. statement. So it's okay to make those decisions. Yeah. I think how you articulated that is so important because I agree with you that the sort of um, gospel-centered movements were very good and necessary mm-hmm. and, and made good points. But by describing the gospel as the center, which I know what, what is meant there, it's, it's of most importance, but it almost came across then as if nothing, nothing else, else is matters. important. Right. But you're right. The gospel really is the boundary. That's what separates us yeah. from the world. And then, as, we, as you said, as we move, move further in, there are certain doctrinal issues that there has to be stronger agreement on mm-hmm. as we get closer to the center. Yeah. And church membership and church leadership, that's, that's the, the, the very center. Yeah. And very, we all understand helpful. that, right? right. I yeah. mean, we all practice that. Right. But somehow when we get outside of our churches, we sort of forget that. Yeah, yeah. I want to, I want to go back to something you said, as you mentioned, kind of the, the, the way that you want to look at concentric circles, kind of driving the point home with regard to those who would be in leadership here. Mm. How do you respond to and, and engage folks who are coming from the outside, visiting for the first time, excited to place membership, but are still wrestling with some of these issues? Mm-hmm. Maybe they've background is one of, uh, that's steeped in Pentecostalism. Mm-hmm. They're trying to understand what this cessationist thing is. They're wrestling with. Does that mean no miracles? Does mm-hmm. that mean mm-hmm. how are you how are you how are you all you know shepherding those folks through that process? What would that look like? Yeah, I think, and, and obviously that happens, sure. we're, but it's clear where we stand and it's out there. It's one of our distinctives that mm-hmm. we make sure people understand when they become really a part of the church, a regular attender and, and eventually a member. In terms of membership specifically, you know, we want to help people in all the areas where they there may be disagreement. So for example, if someone comes and we're not sure where they stand either doctrinally or or even in terms of their relationship to the Lord, mm-hmm. we would encourage them to connect to a class we have called Fundamentals of the Faith, mm-hmm. where they're gonna they're gonna be exposed in a smaller class setting with some conversation where somebody can get to know them a bit. What is it that they really believe? Mm-hmm. So we have a better sense of that. Then in our membership class, they're gonna be they're gonna be taught the doctrinal statement. They're gonna be taught our distinctives, and and then we want to discern where do they disagree. So our membership application ask very specifically, what areas of the church's doctrinal statement do you have any either question about mm. or disagreement with? Yeah. And and then we go from there. We're okay with someone joining our church who isn't yet completely convinced of a position mm. because maybe they haven't studied it. That's yeah. not uncommon. They've never really thought about it. Mm. They grew up in the Pentecostal movement. We ask them not to be divisive, mm-hmm. and we tell them this is where we are, and uh, if you land somewhere else, then, you know, this is not the place for you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're very upfront about that. But we're okay with there being some, some disagreement, including on that issue. Yeah. But we want to shepherd them. We want to expose them. We encourage them to, you know, now that the book's out, we'll encourage them to read the book. Yeah. Encourage them to listen to the strange fire messages. Yeah. 
before they really become members to say, think about this. And if you really are in complete disagreement, then, you know, this isn't going to be the right church yeah. for you. I think, I think laying that out is important. I think there are pastors who maybe are beholden to, to some of the ideas from the church growth movement uh, who wouldn't be willing to take some of the steps that you've taken mm -hmm. uh, to discern whether or not someone is with you, uh, to make clear where you actually mm -hmm. stand. Uh, I think a lot of folks are wanting, you know, I've been part of churches where they're trying to build numbers and, mm -hmm. you know, they want to make sure that they're the largest in the city and that kind mm -hmm. of thing. And so it, it really pushes back against maybe drawing some hard lines and saying, hey, here's exactly where we stand and we love you. That doesn't change. And we want, right. to, we want to properly shepherd you uh, in the direction that we're going to go because we're going to land on the sufficient of scripture. Yeah, That's no, cool. you're absolutely right. In fact, and this is somewhat counterculture, but when I meet somebody who's new to our church, one of the first things I'll ask them is, you know, tell me about your spiritual background. Where are you coming from? Mm -hmm. And then what I want to do right out of the gate is, is explain the differences yeah. between where we are as a church yeah. and where they are. Mm -hmm. So for example, someone comes from a, a Southern Baptist church in the area. You know, I, I say to them, look, we're essentially Baptistic in our doctrine, mm -hmm. um, but there are two major differences. One is we're, we believe very strongly in the sovereignty of God. Mm -hmm. We believe God is sovereign in salvation from beginning to end. We believe He's sovereign over all things. And secondly, we believe that the church is to be led by a plurality of godly men. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to hide that. Mm -hmm. I want that to be out there because, frankly, if they're going to have a problem with that, I'd rather them have a problem with that before they become right. entrenched and built friendships yes. and yeah. their leaving creates this giant sucking sound, right. you know? Yeah. I'd rather them, if they're going to make that an issue, I'd rather them leave right out of the yeah. gate yeah. rather than, you know, six months, a year later. Yeah. That, that shepherding aspect is so key. We want, I mean, this is, this is the thing with this doctrinal issue or really with anything that, that we affirm and, and stress. We're not looking for perfection and people to just line up you know, just, just accept what we say. We want them to understand biblically why we believe what we believe, and that's what is such, you know, a value about this book mm -hmm. in particular. One, one argument I think, you know, that, that I've, I've made for years because I think a lot of people don't grasp this, and you make this really well in the book, is to help people. I think most, many Christians think, well, people were gifted with miracles all through Scripture, like from mm -hmm. Adam all the way through the apostles. Miracles were all over the place. People were gifted with miracles. Mm -hmm. And, but then when you start to show them, as you did, that really there are three sort of central periods in which the miraculous gifts mm -hmm. appeared, you know, Moses, Elijah, and Elisha, and then Jesus and the apostles. Mm -hmm. You make that argument really well. What, I want to ask you, though, I, I've recently seen online some of the responses to the book, some of the responses to the film, and one of the, one of the, state, one of the arguments I've seen several times, and I want to, I'm curious to hear what you would say, is that just because we don't see people have miraculous gifts between those big periods, that doesn't necessarily mean that there weren't uh, miraculous gifts during those periods. So what would you say to that sort of pushback on that particular line of argument? Yeah, you know, I, I would take two different tacks. First of all, I think there are two different groups that sort of make that argument. Okay. One, I think, misunderstands the point of the book and the point of the of the movie, and that is that we're not talking about God working miracles. Right. You know, that's one of the major sort of pushbacks. Well, what about that's what about when God in Genesis rained down fire, you know, and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah? Mm -hmm. So, well, well, yeah, of course. Right. God works miracles at points throughout the history of, of humanity. Mm -hmm. 
and I believe God is still working miracles today. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about sure, that at yeah. some point. But but that's different. That is patently different yes. than God giving men the capacity to work miracles. Yes. So I think that's the first issue to address is we're talking about, you know, apples and oranges right. when we talk about that. Mm-hmm. As far as the argument, well, you know, how do you know? It's like, well, that's an argument from silence. That's mm-hmm. an argument from the white space. There's there's yeah. no indication anywhere. And we have, you know, with Scripture, you have the record, obviously, from creation somewhere, depending on, you know, your your view of the, the age of the earth, but four to 10,000 years before Christ, um, all the way to 100 years after Christ. Mm-hmm. We have that entire period described, and those are the three periods in which we have miracles. Mm-hmm. Secondly... We have extensive uh, material on in some of those periods, you know, not so much yeah, obviously right. from creation to Abraham. We have just the the first eleven chapters, mm-hmm. but we have extensive revelation. Mm-hmm. For example, Genesis is a great example. You know, you have God uh, choosing Abraham, and He's going to be the one who leads the and, and is the father of the witness nation, mm-hmm. the nation from whom will come the written word and the incarnate word. And and yet through him and those who follow him, you see no indication of that capacity. Right. So that's just one example yeah. of a lot of places you can go where it's not just that we have this large sweep of history and you say, well, maybe they just didn't mention it because that's such a, you know, we only have a few chapters over such a large period of time. Yeah. It's like, no, w- the scripture drills down and gives us detailed accounts of certain periods. I think another great one is the period of Ezra and Nehemiah, Hmm, you know, after the Babylonian captivity. Mm -hmm. You know, we have so much there. And what you find, interestingly enough, is you find instead of the the miracles that God had worked Mm -hmm. um, so overtly, even God himself, you find instead God working through his word and through providence, you know? Yeah. And, and and even even in the New Testament, we see miracles or people gifted with miracles early in Acts, but it seems to be fading away later in Acts. Mm-hmm. And mentioned heavily in in Corinthians, one of the earliest epistles, and less mentioned, yeah. and not even mentioned at all in some cases in the latter epistles. Why would that be? Um, and the pastoral epistles, right. you know, letters written yes. to tell the church how to function. Yeah. No, no reference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's important too, and this, this relates again to the other things you've already said, we're, we're not saying that just because there's silence during those periods, that, that is the definitive argument. We're making, you're, you're making a bi- bigger biblical case. All of these seven arguments are working together. Not yeah. one of them stands alone. They all, right. they all build on each other. And so this is just illustrative of the fact that God, as you mentioned, which really is, is a central argument, these gifts were given to confirm the revelation of God and God's servants at these important junctures, mm-hmm. transitional periods in the outworking of God's plan in human history. Yeah. So well, it's, a, it's a larger theological argument. And to your point, I think those arguments come together beautifully in Hebrews 2, mm. you know, where yes. you have the writer of Hebrews, and, and most conservative scholars agree that it was written shortly before the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, if you're arguing that the, the sacrificial system has ended right, right. and you don't mention that and it's already happened, that's, uh, that's very unlikely. Yeah, right. So it's, you have then, just before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the writer of Hebrews saying, 
that you know this message of the gospel was first given to us by the Lord, mm-hmm. then by those who heard him, referring to the apostles, and it says this message was confirmed, the message of the apostles, through their working these amazing miracles. Right. So even just before the destruction of the temple, you have the writer of the book of Hebrews saying, that's not happening anymore. That, yeah. that was something yeah. God worked through them, mm-hmm. not through us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you see it, I think, powerfully there where you have the scripture and you have the end of the gifts, even in biblical history, yeah. all coming together. Pastor Tom, what would you say to this? I, I, I'm thinking about it through, through, through the, cult, the current cultural lens which uh, often uh, involves uh, ethnicity, right? And so there would be some that would say, well, yeah, that cessationism thing for you, you're kind of an older white guy, not really emotive, that, 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 that kind of, that, that, that works for you. But, but for those of us, people of color, who are a little bit more interested in, in, in emotion and are connected, we can still get impressions and, and kind of feel God. I mean, how, how the, the charge is if, if Tom Pennington just had the Holy Spirit uh, <laughs> and he could get the power, maybe, maybe get, get some tongues going, man, think of the force that he would be for good uh, for the kingdom of God. How do, you, how, do you, how do you handle that kind of a charge? You know, Virgil, I always come back to the, the key question, and that is, look, this isn't about me. This isn't about you. This isn't about our backgrounds. It's not about the things that that distinguish us, it's about the things that unite us as believers. And so the question always comes back to, what does the Bible say? That's good. You know, what does the Bible say? And, and I, would, I would say to a, a brother, for example, you mentioned the impressions. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of uh, even cessationists right. who say, I believe in impressions. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Lord leads me, the Lord speaks to me. Mm-hmm. And I think you, we need to acknowledge that that is not inherently charismatic. That's, you know, there are a lot of uh, cessationists throughout church history who would embrace that. Mm-hmm. But what it is, is mystical. Right. Yeah. And mysticism is another one of the enemies to ultimately to the, the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah. Uh, and it's misleading. You know, many who hold that position would never do this. But I've had people sit in my office and say, God told me to divorce my spouse, mm-hmm. even though there are no biblical grounds. Mm-hmm. So, well, how do you argue with that? Well, the scripture, <laughs> right. mm-hmm. you know, but for them, they're completely convinced that yeah. this is what God has told them because they bought into that, that sort of mystical. And I always say, uh, you know, I had a man sit in my office and say, you know, God told me to move my family from Oregon to Texas. Mm-hmm. And I said, really? How did you know that? Well, I, I just know. I said, did he speak to you like audibly? So, well, oh no, no, it was like a, it was like an impression in my heart, mm-hmm. and I just said to him, I said, well, how did you know that was from God? How do you know it wasn't your flesh? Because living in Oregon as a Christian is a lot harder than living in yeah. Texas. Mm-hmm. How do you know it wasn't the pizza you had the night before? You have no way to know, mm-hmm. and that's why I love the fact that Luther said we have the external word. Yes. You know, we're not relying on something internal that we've got to somehow parse and, Mm -hmm. you know, is that God? Is that not God? Is that me? No, we have the external word. We have sentences, words in black and white Mm -hmm. where God has spoken and we don't have to question that. That's great. That's really, that's that's really key. You, you, you made the important distinction earlier between uh, us believing that the gifts of the miraculous gifts have ceased, but not saying 
God doesn't work miracles mm-hmm. today. So talk about that a little bit. Do you believe God is working miracles today? And if so, what, what, what kinds of miracles, what does that look like? You know, I think this touches on a key issue. You know, I think we are wrongly accused of essentially believing that the Holy Spirit doesn't work at all today. Right. right. And that is an absolute caricature mm-hmm. of what we believe. Mm-hmm. The truth is, anytime that anything eternal happens in my life or mm-hmm. in the lives of the people I minister to, mm-hmm. it's because of the work of the Holy Amen. Spirit. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, the question is, how does the Spirit work, not is He working? Yes. Um, but but to your to your question, you know, I I think my answer to that is, I see miracles all the time mm-hmm. because every time a dead sinner, yes. dead in his trespasses and sins, is made alive in the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration, that is a miracle. Mm. I mean, you ne- you'll never see something more miraculous no, than right? that. No. And so that is a miracle. That happens all the time in my church yeah. and in churches across, across the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I have seen uh, God intervene miraculously and heal somebody mm-hmm. where the medical establishment has given up and said, there's no hope for this person. You better start preparing, you know, your 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 life for your coming death mm. and God has intervened and mm. pretty soon they're doing scans and there's no cancer. Right. I've I've seen that happen. I believe that was a miracle. Mm. God intervened and healed. So of course, you know, God is God. Yeah. He has throughout history intervened according to his will. Mm-hmm. And he can do that at his pleasure. Yeah, that's great. That's not the question. Yeah. The question is, is God giving miracle working power to men. Yes. And the answer to that biblically is absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we begin to wrap up, I just want to ask, you know, uh, your thoughts about this book, any hopes that you have for this book? Uh, mm-hmm. what, what are your desires to, to see happen with, with the, with the mm-hmm. book you've put together? You know, I think there, there are a couple of different purposes. One is to equip God's people mm-hmm. because again, I, I've lived long enough to see how the church is thinking about this has changed and it's not been helpful. And a lot of that's because the church hasn't been taught. Mm -hmm. And so my goal is to say, let's equip believers who who already hold this position but have no idea how to defend it. Uh, That's one goal. I think the second clear goal is to see this be a resource that Christians who are cessationists can give to those who aren't. Or that, a you know, I love the fact that people online are taking issue with the book. Sure. I, you know, let's let's have an argument, but let's bring it back to what does the scripture say? Yes. I, you know, I've been uh, struck by the fact that often the arguments really don't address the arguments in the book, the yeah. biblical arguments. Yeah, right. They're they're more emotional, mm-hmm. experiential. So let's talk about what the Bible says. But I would love for, you know, people who are in that movement mm-hmm. who are um, have grown up in it, maybe does, don't know that there's a, a different view. I, I meet people like that all the time mm. who will pick up a book like this or be given a book like this and understand that the Spirit and the Word are enough. Yeah, Amen. Absolutely. Amen. absolutely. We're so thankful that you wrote this. We're so thankful that we got to partner with you on mm. this. Um, I've, I've thought for years what you said right at the beginning and that there really is nothing like this mm. accessible, not too long, 
pastoral, but but exhaustive in looking at the biblical arguments. Mm. And so I'm telling everybody, this this is the new standard. This yeah, is this well, is such you. a helpful resource for all the reasons you just mentioned, and and we pray that God will use it in in Amen. really yeah. uh, great ways. Yeah. Amen. Well, Tom, thanks for joining us for this edition of Honest Conversations. We look forward to greater conversations with you in the days to come. Our conference that will be coming up in the days mm. to come. Looking forward to having you join us. Thanks yeah. for being with us. Thank you, guys. Thanks.